Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Dr. Ellen Gravelacy, Chief of the Division of Rheumatology, Inflammation and Immunity at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, is my guest on the podcast today. So Ellen has had a huge impact on rheumatology research, focusing on the mechanisms that lead to bone and joint destruction. And her list of achievements and awards are exhaustive, but they include the Sandoz Award for Medical Research. She was selected as one of the best doctors in America in 2015. And she also served as the 83rd president of the American College of Rheumatology last year. And so with that in mind, Ellen, I'm both honoured and delighted to sit down and chat to you today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Megan. Looking forward to it. I suppose one of my first questions for you is I really want to go back and talk about what Ellen Gravelacy was like when you were a child or in school. And did you always have a real kind of interest into medicine and research and science or did that come a little later on? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I'm I told that I was a very curious child. Um, I think it was very vexing for my mother because I was constantly asking questions about <laughs> You know, why doesn't the water boil immediately? Why do we have to wait? <laughs> why do these plants bloom at this time of the year and others later in the year? Those sorts of questions. And I know she would always say, well, just wait for your father to come home. <laughs> so I think I was always just very curious and I was always interested in science. I just gravitated to science from a very early age. My interest in medicine was actually much later. And in fact, I went to medical school not so much to practice medicine, but really to be able to investigate um, areas that were going to be important for human health. So it was more of a maybe a science interest rather than a medical interest. It really was. And I remember in college really grappling with whether I should go the PhD route or the MD route. Um, I had already done a lot of research when I was in college and really loved research and definitely gravitated to projects that were medically relevant. And that was my reason for going to medical school. So it was always research. And when you were, I suppose, because the system is different over in Ireland, but when you were, I suppose, 18, choosing college or, you know, choosing what your degree would be in America, I think you have to do kind of a a bachelor degree first before you can go into medical school. Is that right? You do have to do a bachelor degree. And during your bachelor degree, you choose an area of interest, a a major it's called. Mm. And mine was biochemistry. So that was probably the most scientific um, area that you could choose in the areas related to biology. The first year is um, more of a general education, but in the second year of college, that's when you really begin to specialize. And that was when I started uh, my medical research career really was in that second year of college. 
if you're if you're interested to see I, because I think it was very influential in my career. Um, the chair and the, this sort of shows serendipity as well in careers. Um, but the chair of uh, biochemistry at the time was named Guido Guadagni, and he was an incredibly inspirational um, mentor and scientist. He taught the basic biochemistry course. It was called Biochem Ten, and really. Everybody who took Biochem 10 who wanted to do research wanted to work with him. So he put an ad in the school newspaper um, saying that he was offering a summer position. And it was for people who had finished one year of biochemistry and uh, it was to work in his research laboratory. So many people applied, including myself, and we were called in for interviews on a Saturday morning. He said, come at 10 a.m. So I went at 10 a.m., but it seemed that all of my colleagues went at 9 a.m. So I was at the end of a very, very, very long line. And in fact, I was so discouraged that I thought maybe I shouldn't stay, uh, that it was useless. Uh, but I did stay. And uh, I was interviewed probably an hour and a half later after waiting in line. And it was a 15-minute interview. He went over my transcript, asked me many questions about biochemistry. And then he said, Gravelisi, that's Italian, isn't it? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm Italian as well. Well, which of course I knew. And then he said, where are you from? So I said, well, my father was from Northern Italy in the Lakes region and my mother was from Avellino. And he said, Avellino, well, that's where I'm from. And then he said, when can you start? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's how I got my first job in science. And honestly, that job changed my career. It really put me on a trajectory um, to end up where I am today. God, yeah, it's mad. Like, I feel like the more I speak to people on this podcast, the more the kind of role of serendipity and being at the right place at the right time kind of comes into these things. So was that, you had only just done one year of college, was that it? And then... I had done, that was at the end of my second year of college. Um, so I'd done one year of general studies and then one year of biochemistry. So um, between my second and third years, that was a summer job that I had. And then I went and I actually ended up doing my senior honors thesis in his laboratory. And I worked on red cell membrane proteins and identified an, a new anion channel in the red cell membrane. That was my senior honors thesis. Okay, so I suppose before I get into, you know, your trajectory and your journey through your medical career, I just want to ask you something about you when you were younger, because I read somewhere that you wanted to overturn the kind of single sex education system and you had applied or, or wanted to get into the, the school that your brothers went to. So tell me about that. Yes. Well, I come from a very large family. I have two brothers and we lived in a town called Andover, Massachusetts, which is north of Boston. And there's a very prestigious school in Andover called Phillips Andover Academy. And it was all boys. And both of my brothers went to Phillips Andover Academy. And I didn't see any reason why I couldn't go there. <laughs> so I actually put in an application. Um, I think I must have been the first girl to apply. And they sent me a very nice letter saying, well, you know, you're certainly qualified, but we're not taking girls. We're just not prepared to do that yet. But interestingly, about three years later, they did start to take girls. And um, it's now fully co-ed. And do you, is it in your family? Is it you and two boys or do you have any other siblings? I have a younger sister as well. And okay. she's in uh, education. 
I was well, yeah, because I was wondering, was it that you were you really wanted to like you know be like your older brothers? Is that why you wanted to go to that school? Well, you know, I, I felt that it was probably the best place to get an education, and they had the opportunity to get that education, and I really didn't see why I, because I was a girl, couldn't also <laughs> have that opportunity. Um, so I think I was feisty even from that was probably I was must have been twelve or thirteen at the time. I was fairly feisty even then. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me then. You know, you're in. Um, you decided to go into medical school and at what point then did you decide that rheumatology was the aspect of medicine you wanted to get involved with? Yeah, so that's another kind of interesting story. Again, serendipity. Um, There was a rotation. I was at Columbia Medical School in New York, and um, it was a very tertiary care hospital, and they always wanted us to do some community work in a community hospital. And we had the opportunity to go to a place called Cooperstown, New York, um, which is a beautiful town in northern New York. Uh, They had a house for medical students, and you could take rotations there. And we wanted to, my husband and I, I wanted to do that. And um, I was too busy really to think about it, honestly. So he wanted to sign us up and I said, okay, fine. You know, why don't you do that? I think I was doing a medical sub internship at the time and was very, very busy. So he came back one day and he said, well, we're going to Cooperstown. And I said, well, that's wonderful. What are we doing in Cooperstown? And he said, well, I'm doing cardiology. You've already done it. I need to do it. And uh, I signed you up for the only thing that was left. And I said, well, what was that? And he said, rheumatology. And I remember saying to him, no, I'm not doing rheumatology. I have no interest in rheumatology. I'm going into hematology. That was what I thought I wanted to do. Anyway, I went and I was paired up with then a very young investigator, clinician and investigator, Gary Hoffman. I don't know if you know the name, but he was, he later became the chair of uh, rheumatology at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, But at the time he was a community rheumatologist and just interested in, you know, investigative areas. He ended up going to the NIH and working with Tony Fauci on vasculitis and then becoming the chair at Cleveland Clinic. But he was incredibly inspirational. We spent a whole month together. It was an incredible month and I learned so much. He had me see all of his new patients and gave me follow-up on everyone that I had seen because he said rheumatology is a longitudinal specialty and you need to you know, know how these patients, um, what ended up happening with these patients. So it was a very inspirational time and I did consider rheumatology. I still wasn't absolutely sure that I wanted to do rheumatology and in fact, when I applied in medicine, I actually wanted to do pathology. Um, and I, I became a pathologist. I don't know if you know that, but mm-hmm. um, my first career was in pathology. And I went into pathology thinking that it would be a good way to combine medical research and um, investigation. So um, long story short, I worked when I was in pathology with the chair of surgical pathology who had an interest in synovial-based pathology. And so again, I did a lot of work with him in my pathology training. And because I really missed medicine, uh, they developed, the chair of pathology developed a five-year residency, which I think I was the only person who ever did this, uh, but it was a five-year residency and I got double boarded at the end of it in anatomic pathology in and um, internal medicine. And the pathology training was key to my research, really. Because I, I read somewhere that, you know, you were looking at all, I don't know if this is in this part of your career that you were looking at all these slides of RA specimens and you were like, oh, I really want to get involved in this, in this research. Was that during your pathology training or was that later? 
That was during my pathology training. And, you know, these are all such interesting stories. I think this was Dr. Joseph Corson. And what he said to me was, he said, you know, you might be interested in looking at autopsies from patients with rheumatoid arthritis, since you're interested in, in the disease rheumatoid arthritis. And I said, that would be wonderful. So he opened the back door of his office and he had a closet, which was just absolutely packed with boxes. All of them uh, were autopsies on patients with rheumatoid arthritis that he had collected over a 50 year period. Um, there probably were like 180 or so autopsies. And I just looked at all of them. I, I went through all the slides and interestingly, um, we, I found 46 cases of vasculitis. And of those 46, 10 of them had aortitis. And I thought this was an amazing finding because, you know, no one really knew that rheumatoid arthritis patients get aortitis. Mm -hmm. And um, several of those cases were clinically significant with aortic rupture or um, you know, uh, aortic insufficiency. And so I was all excited and I went into Dr. Corson to tell him about this. And I said, can you imagine that patients with rheumatoid arthritis can get aortitis? And his comment was, well, of course they can get aortitis. Doesn't everyone know that? <laughs> <laughs> because he obviously knew it. And I said, no one knows that. So we wrote up a paper it was one of my first papers as a rheumatology fellow uh, describing rheumatoid aortitis. That's so interesting. So he obviously had seen this, but had never written it up or, you know, wasn't he was aware, but he thought the knowledge was out there. Exactly. He thought everyone knew this because as a pathologist, he saw these cases all the time. So I think it, you know, it does tell you that we're probably missing things that are hidden away in various subspecialties and the subspecialists think we know about them and maybe we don't. Yeah. And hidden away in closets, it seems. <laughs> in closets. Exactly. So talk to me then about coming involved in the world of rheumatology and why I suppose you ultimately chose that field and why you've stuck with it, why you are the, where you are today. Yeah, so um, I I really loved the training that I got in medicine with rheumatology patients. I really loved the continuity. I love the fact that the diseases require you to understand all of medicine, really. I mean, we take care of every organ in the body. And with my training in pathology in that area, I thought it would be a, a great area to go into. And I was also very interested in immunology. I had done a lot of immunology training. It just seemed like a perfect fit. So I did um, go into rheumatology, as you know. And in the clinic in those days, I, I'm uh, dating myself, but this was in the pre-biologic era that I did my training. And of course, in those days, patients with rheumatoid arthritis were crippled. And so our clinics were filled with patients who were in wheelchairs, who you know couldn't use their hands, couldn't walk. And what I didn't understand, and I kept asking my attendings this, is the inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis is in the soft tissue. It's in the synovium. So how is it that there's destruction of the joint? destruction of cartilage and bone. And I got many, many different answers, you know, when I asked the question, which means that no one really knows. And so I thought this is an area that I really should work on in the laboratory. And so that was how I ended up studying joint destruction in rheumatoid arthritis. And how did you, you know, because I'm just thinking about me as a, I've just finished my PhD, but I've been solely uh, trained in a scientific lab. So how was that transition from being a medical doctor to then trying to apply that to academic research and, you know, research in the lab? Did you find that hard or had you mentors along the way? 
Well, in our training, what we do is um, if you are interested in science, you do one year of clinical rheumatology and then you enter into a laboratory. And I was very lucky to work with Laurie Glimsher, and she was obviously a basic immunologist. So we were able to work together on some of the basic immunology studies. And then I kept telling her that I wanted to work on joint destruction and rheumatoid arthritis. And she said, absolutely, you should just do it. <laughs> so she gave me an ear in her laboratory as I advanced through my uh, training and said, you know, if you want to get your own research grants and have your own research group, you could do that right here and, um, and we can continue to collaborate. And that's what we did. So much of my early work on joint destruction in RA was done um, in that laboratory. So I suppose this is probably a good point in our conversation to bring in, you know, your research and maybe talk to me about rheumatoid arthritis just as a whole and maybe what a patient my experience um, the, the disease would present as and then maybe talk about the um, mechanisms that are at play in the joint behind that disease for, for people who may not be aware. So, you know, of course, things have changed so much in the 20 years of my career. When I began, uh, rheumatoid arthritis was just a devastating disease, um, a systemic disease. People were fatigued, um, maybe had fevers, their joints were involved and other organs in the body could be involved, the lung and, and the heart and many other um, areas. Now, of course, it's a different disease because we have such effective anti-inflammatory medications uh, with the biologic agents with agents that can interfere with T and B cell function, um, that can block cytokines. But in the early days, um, this was a disease that was really it wasn't so much a death sentence, although patients did die earlier with RA, but it was crippling. Mm -hmm. And um, if you got this disease and you had a severe case of it, or even you know a, a moderate case of it, you were going to be confined to a wheelchair ultimately. And what's happened since then is that we have developed a number of ways to intervene with the inflammatory pathways that occur in the joint. Um, and specifically, the cytokines that are produced in the joint joint that lead to inflammation, we can block most of the really critical cytokines in this disease and we can keep the inflammation under control. And if you can keep the inflammation under control, you can prevent joint destruction, which is exactly what we are. The goal of therapy now is really prevention. And within your specific research focus, I know you're very interested in osteoclasts and why are the, is the inflammation of the soft tissues, why does that then impact or erode bones? So talk to me about your findings. So I'll tell you how we came about this. I, as I mentioned, I was interested in joint destruction and I thought really the most important piece of joint destruction is destruction of the cartilage because that's you know going to affect joint function. So what we did is we got, we worked with the orthopedic surgeons. We had a very close collaboration with orthopedics and I had two orthopedic surgeons and I explained to them exactly what I wanted when they were doing joint replacement surgery. I wanted the interface between the inflammatory synovial tissue and the cartilage and bone because I thought that's where the destruction must occur. And they were terrific at getting me just exactly that area um, and sending it to me in the laboratory. And we began to study these areas. And this is where I say the pathology training was critical because I started to look at these tissue sections and I saw multinucleated giant cells at the interface between the inflammatory synovial tissue and bone. And I remember thinking, well, of course those cells are osteoclasts because that's the only cell that resorb bone. And, um, you know, I just really thought not much of it. And then I was driving home that night and I thought, well, 
if there are osteoclasts there, why is it that no one has ever mentioned this? And um, I went to the literature and there were literally no papers on this at all, nothing describing this. There was one very nice paper by David Woolley from several years earlier, looking at subchondral bone and showing that in RA there was osteoclastogenesis and bone turnover, um, but really nothing at that joint pans interface. And so I said, well, this is really an important finding, and we really should demonstrate that these cells are osteoclasts. And just about the, the week later, uh, I was reading Science magazine, and there was a paper in Science which identified the calcitonin receptor and cloned the calcitonin receptor and demonstrated that this is a definitive marker of the osteoclast. And that paper was written by Steve Goldring and his group. So I called Steve. He was actually in another Harvard institution right across the street from me. And I told him about my findings in rheumatoid arthritis and the fact that I would really like to get the reagents from the cloning of the calcitonin receptor so that we could prove that these cells were osteoclasts. And there was a long pause. And he said, you know, we've actually been thinking along some of these similar lines, perhaps we should collaborate. So that started a 10-year collaboration with Steve, um, who was a bone biologist. And we did identify the cells as being osteoclasts. We showed definitively uh, the calcitonin receptor expression and expression of other osteoclast markers. And the osteoclast is a terminally differentiated macrophage, essentially, which is engineered to be able to resorb bone. Mm. It can resorb the organic matrix of bone and it can dissolve the mineral components of bone. It's reasonable that this would be a very important cell type to study. And again, you know, lots of serendipity in this part of my career as well. Um, just at that time that we began to think about osteoclastogenesis in RA and what might be driving it, in the bone field, people had been looking for the uh, cytokine which drives osteoclastogenesis. And for about 10 years, no one had found it. And then suddenly there was the cloning of rank ligand, the receptor activator of NF-kappa NF B ligand. And the group at Amgen demonstrated that this is a critical cytokine for osteoclastogenesis. So the day that that paper came out, I went to my lab manager and I said, we need to disperse the rheumatoid synovial tissue and look at the different cell types within the synovium because what if some of these cell types express rank ligand? Wouldn't that explain the osteoclastogenesis? And it turned out that several cell types within the rheumatoid inflammatory environment do express rank ligand, including synovial fibroblasts and activated T cells. Those are the first cells that we demonstrated um, to produce rank ligand. So our hypothesis was then that the rheumatoid synovial tissue comes into the bone microenvironment. Um, the cells that express rank ligand drive osteoclastogenesis and the osteoclast resorb bone. And how, you know, with these findings, could we then manipulate these for, I suppose, therapeutic benefit? Yes. So the rank ligand pathway has already actually been inhibited um, in a number of ways. Um, many companies, including Amgen, were very interested in this as well. And it turns out that the mechanism that we identified in rheumatoid arthritis for bone destruction is the same mechanism by which bone is destroyed in most diseases. <clears throat> it's the same mechanism um, as in metastatic disease to the bone, in osteoporosis, and many other uh, bone-losing diseases. Uh, so there's a great interest in blocking this pathway, and there are now antibodies to rank 
glycoglycand um, that can block that pathway. And they're being used for osteoporosis and, and many other diseases. I think, you know, just that point is so interesting in that something that we or someone discovers in one area of research or medicine can that could then be applied to so many other different areas is is just fascinating. And I think it really shows that we all should be probably collaborating with each other, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. People say to me, oh, you know, you were lucky to be a bone biologist because that led you to doing this work. And the fact is, I was never a bone biologist. I became a bone biologist only through a need, you know, to to understand that field. And it required quite a bit of reading and, you know, um, teaching myself really about what it is that uh, occurs in bone. What are the osteoclasts role? What are the osteoblasts role? Um, and in really to understand that area. Um, and I think it is very important to read widely because you do get very important um, understanding of disease by thinking about what other specialties are thinking about in their diseases and what the overlap in mechanism might be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned them there, like the osteoblasts. So I suppose, is there any way of rebalancing, bringing back homeostasis and balancing out this kind of balance between osteoclast and osteoblast? And I know that you're interested in how, you know, synovial inflammation can actually inhibit or or downregulate the osteoblast function. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have some animal models where we can look at the resolution phase of inflammation. And what we've discovered is that inflammation not only drives the osteoclast to form and resorb bone, but it also inhibits the ability of the osteoblast to make bone. Mm -hmm. And probably also the differentiation of the osteoblast from the early mesenchymal precursor cell. So the whole name of the game really is to control inflammation. If you can control inflammation, you can bring back that home homeostasis. Um, whether or not we'll be able to repair uh, damaged bone, we have not been able really to do that yet. We've tried. Uh, we've done some clinical trials actually um, with anabolic agents to beef up the osteoblast function, and they haven't been successful in established rheumatoid arthritis. So I think um, it, the ability of these precursor cells or the presence of these precursor cells is so damaged by the time you have established disease that it's very difficult difficult to recapitulate the normal cycle of bone formation once you have bone erosion. So again, it's really all about prevention, but I do see a time in the future uh, with tissue engineering going the way it is that we will be able, I think, to uh, repair bone in the future. Yeah, because one of the questions I was going to ask you, which I don't know is if it's possible, but you know, could we boost up the osteoblast function maybe prior to disease onset and in, you know, those kind of preclinical um, phases of RA, but maybe it might be strong enough to combat the inflammation and osteoclast formation. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought. Um, I do think once you have inflammation, all bets are off. Um, things just seem to go haywire in bone when inflammation is present. And I think um, one of the reasons I say that is that we, you know, we've been very successful, as I said, in controlling inflammation. Um, but when we look with very careful mechanisms like um, high-end ultrasound or MRI with gadolinium and ask the question in a patient that we think clinically is in remission from RA, 
is there still inflammation in the joints? And the answer is often yes. Uh, there are still joints where there is inflammation. So we haven't been able to completely eliminate inflammation. And if you look at what joints uh, show repair, evidence of repair, it's always the joints where inflammation is controlled and not the ones where there's residual inflammation. So again, that's, I think, the key. And, you know, we're Obviously, we're interested in joint preservation, but we're also interested in some of the other downstream effects of inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis, such as cardiovascular disease. And we know that if inflammation is present, it does drive cardiovascular disease and our patients are at increased risk for myocardial infarction and other MACE endpoints. So how much inflammation do we really need to control in order to prevent those kinds of downstream events? That's another question that we're grappling with in the field. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And another kind of area I know you're interested in is, you know, these DNA sensing mechanisms and the kind of downstream innate signaling pathways. So talk to me a bit about those and why you want to look at these pathways. Well, we got into that area through some collaborators uh, who were working on a very interesting model of arthritis, um, which is driven by DNA. So this is a model where an enzyme that degrades DNA in macrophages is knocked out. And that enzyme is really important because you want to get rid of any DNA that a macrophage might engulf. Apoptotic cells, for example, have DNA. Uh, immune complexes can have DNA. And these end up in macrophages in the lysozyme. And you want to degrade that DNA because if it gets into the cytosol, it becomes a danger signal. And it's a danger signal because those macrophages are the reason we have those macrophages revved up and ready to um, identify DNA is because viral and bacterial DNA trigger these pathways. And the macrophage is the first uh, line of defense against bacterial and viral infection. So these mechanism are, mechanisms are in place and you can imagine if DNA accumulates in the cell, you're constantly going to be activating those danger signals. And that's what happens in this mouse model. And in Interestingly, in this particular mouse, the mouse gets arthritis. So the question was, why does the mouse get arthritis? And we got involved because the mouse gets joint destruction, and the investigators wanted us to identify the mechanisms of joint destruction. And it turns out that those weren't all that interesting because I won't say all that interesting, but they were predictable. They were exactly the same mechanisms that drive joint destruction in every other setting we've looked at, which is pro-inflammatory cytokines are produced. They drive osteoclastogenesis, osteoclast resorb bone. But we were looking at uh, ankle sections under the microscope and clearly we could see the erosion areas, but in the ankle section, there's a small piece of the tibial bone and what I noticed is that there was accumulation of bone in the tibia. And that made absolutely no sense because these mice, for all reasons, should be, re should be losing bone because they're aging, because there's a pro-inflammatory microenvironment. They should be losing bone and they weren't losing bone. So we started to age the mice out and it turned out that there was a tremendous amount of trabecular bone accrual over time. So there's some anabolic pathway that's being triggered in the setting of these mice. That's how we got interested in studying studying these sensors. And it turns out there are several of these DNA sensors in cytosol of cells that can activate several downstream pathways. And so we're interested in the role of those DNA sensing pathways in inflammation, and then also what is their role in bone. 
Okay, yes. I love hearing the stories though of how the research comes about. I think that's what's so interesting and hopefully people who listen to this podcast might find interesting in that, you know, these things come about in very different ways and that you may not have been contacted by by that those uh, researchers, only that you were, I suppose, an expert in bone. Exactly, exactly. And the other message I think is to follow the leads. Um, you know, if you see something that doesn't make sense or that's unusual, look into it. Um, you know, if you think it's important, because that's where new discoveries are made. Um, and it is a risk. You, know, you, you have to take some risks uh, to spend some time and effort in an area that might not pan out. And of course, you know, I, I tell you about the areas that turned out to be important and exciting. I'm sure we, we had many areas that ended up at dead ends. Um, but that's science. And that's the fun of it, really. So, yeah, talk to me about just on that, you know, what drives your passion for for research and what do you love most about your job and what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think research is just, I can't honestly imagine doing anything else. That's kind of what I would say. I love the discovery. I love following a lead, um, solving a puzzle. I was always somebody who liked to solve puzzles when I was younger. Um, and I, research is a puzzle and you want to get to the answer. And um, especially if you think the answer is going to have impact to the medical field, you know, anything that you discover that might end up in a new therapeutic intervention or a new pathway that could be targeted. Those are really the exciting things for me. That's what drives me in my research. So it's, I guess, a combination of curiosity and, and a hope that can make a difference. Another question I have for you is, you know, how do you how do you do it all in that in the sense that, you know, you've got your research lab, you've got your patients, you have to see your lecturer, your head of um, chief division in, in rheumatology in Harvard, ACR president last year. How, how do you find time, I suppose, to, to juggle everything? And then at the other side of a juggle, I suppose, family life. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> I think it's the, the answer to that is different now than it was when I was younger. I raised two boys and my husband is a pediatric spine surgeon. So he wasn't around much when the boys were younger. And I think that was great training for me because it taught me to compartmentalize. Um, and I, my advice to everyone is when you're at, at a home, you should be focusing on home. And when you're at work, you should be focusing on work. Just to try to compartmentalize those areas is, is so important. I think people get very distracted and um, distraction is inefficient. <laughs> so, um, so I really tried when I was home with the boys to spend time with the boys, to think about the boys, to think about what their needs were, what their interests were, um, you know, to try to foster those interests. But when I was at work, really to focus on work. And I will say I did a lot of work after the boys went to sleep at night. They would go to sleep eight or nine at night. And then I would, you know, work on papers or, you know, papers or grants or plan experiments in that time you know, after work. So I was just very focused and um, just tried to be very efficient with my time. It's a little bit easier now, believe it or not, <laughs> even though I have many other roles. Um, I think those were the early days were the most challenging days. And of course, that's when um, you have to establish your career. So I think young mothers do have a difficult time trying to juggle all of this. It's a little bit easier now because there's more focus on that, at least in the United States, a little bit more help for people with money for technicians, for young investigators, 
uh, who have children, that sort of thing. I didn't really, we didn't really have that in my day, but um, I, I think it's very important that we try to help young people um, who are in that situation because it is a challenge. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, kind of, I, I mentioned it there, but you were the president of the ACR this year. And how was that in a year, which I'm sure when you took on that role last November, you did not anticipate that 2020 would turn out to be how it was? <laughs> well, Megan, actually, um, it was probably the most difficult year of my career because not only did I take on the ACR presidency that year, but I took on a new position as chief of rheumatology uh, at the Brigham. Mm. And those two positions pretty much coincided. I took the Brigham position in early October. I took the uh, ACR presidency on in early November. And then in February, COVID-19 hit. So it was a perfect storm, honestly. Um totally unexpected and um, really challenging. But I enjoyed it in uh, in a way. I mean, I was working 16 hour days, you know, days, day in and day out. Um, but the things that we did, I think were very important for the field. Um, there were so many challenges that had to be faced for rheumatologists, both in academic settings and in practice. And I had a wonderful executive committee and board to work with. Um, so what I did is I realized very quickly that we needed to put into place some sort of a mechanism to be able to respond to the challenges. Um, the ACR structure really wasn't set up to respond to a crisis like this. So where most ACR presidents might appoint one or two task forces, I appointed seven during wow. the year as president. And I don't know if you've heard my presidential address, but in that address, I go through some of the things that we had to do to address these challenges. We had to write clinical guidance for adult patients and then for pediatric patients and then for the MISC syndrome that is seen in children. We had a practice and advocacy task force that addressed telemedicine to try to help um, those in practice to learn how to do telemedicine, um, to apply for federal stimulus money so that their financial um, status would remain solvent. Um, so many things really had to be done, but I couldn't have done it without all these task forces and without all the volunteers who agreed, you know, down to the person to help us with all of these efforts. So it was really a heartwarming experience, to be honest, to see the field of rheumatology come together, to see people volunteering and helping and thinking through the issues with me. It was really a wonderful time, uh, if you could say that, <laughs> a terrible time and a wonderful time at the same time. Well, you know, because I, I watched your opening address and you said, which I really appreciate, I don't know if it was an intentional Hamilton quote, but you know, that rheumatologists should be in the room where it happens and we should, you know, that, that we need to be kind of there in, in light of COVID. So talk to me a bit about, you know, that, that link, because you know, a lot of our drugs that we would give to patients now are showing somewhat uh, benefits for, for COVID-19 in the, in the uh, latter um, stages of the infection. So the quote was from Hamilton. Good. 
for recognizing it. I didn't know if anyone would recognize it, but I thought enough people have seen Hamilton that at least some people will realize that's that's where it came from. Um, but of course, in Hamilton, that's about um, you know writing the Declaration and you know making important um, political decisions and how important it is to be in that room where all those decisions are made. Um, and I feel the same way about rheumatology that we uh, during COVID we've had a real opportunity to highlight our specialty. We are the experts in immunology um, and the ID experts were desperate to understand more about the immunology of this disease uh, because they really didn't understand it. They didn't understand the cytokines. Um, they saw IL, high IL-6 levels, so they immediately said, well, we'll block IL-6. Turns out IL-6 is probably just a marker of inflammation, like a CRP, fancy CRP. And so I, I felt that in our own division, it would be really important to partner with the ID team and uh, see the patients together. And that's exactly what we did. Again, I have some wonderful junior faculty in my division who were very interested in doing this and, you know, real self-starters. So they um, partnered with ID. We started uh, a series of lectures with the ID service, and we did joint rounds with the ID service on the COVID patients. Um, and I saw similar things happening around the country um, where rheumatologists were realizing that their expertise in immunology was not only important for research, but also important for an infectious disease, um, kind of unexpectedly. And uh, the my keynote speaker at the meeting was Eric Rubin, Dr. Eric Rubin, who's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. He's an ID expert. And when I asked him to speak, he said, you know, this will be perfect because it's the first time that I've realized how much rheumatology and ID have in common. And so his uh, talk was directed at the interface between inflammation and infection. Yeah. And I think, you know, just even from the last 40 minutes speaking to you, I think this has come up a lot now, you know, the fact that all different different specialties should really be collaborating and you know with COVID and with everything that happened in 2020 hopefully that's become more apparent in that you know there needs to be more crosstalk. I absolutely agree and um, I don't know if you remember in my uh, presidential address I had six um, lessons that I thought we learned from COVID and one of them was exactly that. Uh, I call it we can't do it alone. Uh, we can't do it alone because we need to be able to identify experts in other fields who, with whom we can collaborate. And it, you know, it really made me think about the way in which we approach medicine. It's very organ-based. Cardiologists take care of the heart. Renal doctors take care of the kidney. Um, and rheumatologists take care of everything. And so it's very, very important for us to think across organs and across uh, specialty areas. I think ultimately in medicine, we should be thinking about a new way of approaching disease. Rather than thinking about organs, we should be thinking about mechanism. And there are so many diseases where there's an immunology underpinning in the mechanism. I think rheumatology should be involved in taking care of all of those patients and thinking about the pathogenesis in all of those diseases. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, I think any rheumatologists who are listening, I'm sure will will 100% agree. I'm definitely with you on, on that. Um, but, you know, Ellen, one of my last questions, which I tend to ask everyone now is, if you weren't in medicine or if you weren't a researcher, where do you think your life would have ended up or what career do you think you would have had? Uh, I probably would have been a journal editor. 
Um, I love scientific editing, and uh, I don't know if you know that I've worked as an associate editor at New England Journal of Medicine, um, which has been one of the most interesting things that I've done in my entire career in medicine. It's so fascinating to see all of medicine sort of at the cutting edge and hear presentations from uh, specialists in all different areas. There's an associate editor for every every area. Uh, there are actually two for cardiology, one for kidney, one for oncology, et cetera. And they bring the most interesting papers to a meeting once a week um, and present those papers. And we all talk about those papers. And that has just been completely fascinating. Um, so I probably would have gone into journal editing is my guess. And you wouldn't have been, because I, I know I read that you play piano. You don't think you would have had a career in music? Well, I love piano and I played very seriously in high school and college, um, very seriously, but I wasn't that good, to be honest, <laughs> wasn't good enough. I have an aunt who's a concert pianist and she was really brilliant um, and I love playing. It isn't that I, you know, that it wouldn't have been a wonderful career. I just don't think I was really good enough to do that, um, but I love that. I also love gardening. I spend a lot of time in my garden at home. I have two gardens. One is um, mostly roses and tree peonies and the other there's wildflowers. Um, and I've started those from scratch and now over the years have really expanded those. And um, it's it's really a wonderful hobby for me. It's um, completely consuming when I'm out there. And I really think about nothing other than pulling weeds and planning, planning what can what can grow when and where. That's funny because, you know, I, I, my dad, anytime I'm home, we live on a farm, so we've got quite a big garden and he'd always be like, will you help me with stuff? And the only thing I really like doing is planting or weeding. I don't know why. I just think it's, there's something satisfying about seeing the weeds come off and you're like, well, it's cleaner now. It's very satisfying. And the best thing is in the spring when everything comes up, you've planned it all out in the fall and the winter, you, you know, it's dormant. And then suddenly you see the fruits of your labor in the spring. It's, it's very, very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Ellen, you know, with that, we've come to the end and thank you so much again. I've, you know, really loved chatting to you. So yeah, thanks for, for taking the time to chat to me today. Well, thank you, Megan. It's a wonderful experience. And I uh, congratulate you for doing these podcasts. Very, very interesting. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.